episode, I talk with my friend, executive editor of Rumorg Magazine and co-host of the Faculty of Hard podcast, Andrea Subasati. We go over our top six favorite Stephen King novels and a few honorable mentions. If you dig this episode, make sure to leave a rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you check out podcasts. That'd be awesome and uh, much appreciated. Um, after you're done with this episode, make sure you check out my fellow horsemen of the podcast apocalypse. Everything Went Black podcast. Into the Necrosphere. The Necromaniacs podcast. Break the Apocalypse. Eyeless Manifestations. And the Soul Knox podcast. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you dig this episode. All right, we are now rolling. Um, thanks for being on the podcast once again, Andrea. My pleasure, Brandon. I was trying to remember my last appearance. What did we talk about? Um, I think last appearance was kind of like a, like an interview type thing. I think it was yeah. like one or two years yeah. ago. It was kind of like an interview type thing or whatever, but um, it was fun. But it, it, interviews are easy to prepare for. If I'm going to talk about myself, you know, I'm an expert on the subject. But for this particular subject, you know, I've been working on my notes for a couple of weeks. And I've got to tell you, my list changed as recently as this morning. Yeah, I'm on the same boat. Um, I finalized my list uh, last night because I've been thinking about it since I, you know, talked about doing this podcast and like, hmm, top six Stephen King novels. This is going to be interesting. And I also included a few novels that he uh, co-wrote with uh, Straub. So, yeah, I'm interested in that because I've I've read a couple of those, but they, they didn't make my top six. Yeah, I, I can see that. Um, the two I picked, I think, are the strongest out of their work together and stuff. Um, oh, also, I uh, just got done reading the uh, one of the King novels I haven't read before, The Revival. Have you read that one? I have. Uh, that one was, I listened to it uh, on an audiobook. So I'm inclined to say that when I listen to something in an audiobook that I've read the book. Is that yeah. valid? Yeah, oh, totally. Um, half of these ones I got on the list here are all audiobooks because okay. I uh, subscribe to Scribd and Scribd okay. is awesome. It's like 11 bucks a month. It's like unlimited audiobooks. It's not like uh, whatever that other thing is that people use, uh, Audible, where you have to pay for the books every month. Yes, I was um, I was very hesitant to join Audible for the longest time. I was getting my audiobooks from the public library for free. And then actually it was a listener of the podcast who gifted me a three month subscription to Audible. And I was like, oh, this is this is it. <laughs> I'm yeah. hooked. I'm in it now. So how it works is like, yes, it's a subscription and your subscription includes one credit every month that you can put toward a book. And I think for some people, if you chew through audiobooks, if you chew through several a month, then yeah, that one credit is just kind of like, oh, that's all you get. And then you have to pay a full price for more. I tend to invest in, I like epic books. I like long books. I like long form uh, fiction and historical nonfiction. So I find I usually accumulate credits. Like I think right now I have two or three credits sitting in my account because I'm still listening to books I I, uh, I ordered a couple of months prior. So I get a lot of value out of it. Um, I, I don't think I have ever once bought a book in addition to the credit that they give you monthly just because that's how I listen. Well, that's cool. Yeah, that definitely works out. Um, I'm kind of on the same boat as you two when it comes to uh, audiobooks and everything. I like long, epic ones, and pretty much anything Stephen King does is long and epic, unless you're going through a short stories, you know. So, 
I also like how Stephen King books, like the audiobooks, obviously, like we're going to talk about a bunch of them, you know, they're from the 80s and 70s and, and, and 90s before there were audiobooks. And he has enough clout now that he gets some pretty, uh, some pretty big names to read some of his audiobooks. I know the audiobook for It is read by Stephen Weber. Um, uh, like he... I, I heard a rumor. I don't know if this is true, but I heard that there, he has an audiobook that's read by um, what's his fucking Franco face, James Franco. Uh huh. Uh, I don't know. A big I don't name know, celebrity, but I'm not a fan, and I'm kind of no, like, Ugh. but yeah, yeah. <laughs> still, uh, all of Joe Hill's audiobooks are read by Kate Mulgrew, who's amazing. So yeah, audiobooks have a whole new dimension when they've got celebrity readers. Yeah, it really does, and it helps like to stay like. Uh, I don't know, stay like uh, paying attention to it and stuff because a bad reader can really fuck shit up for you. You know what I mean? Like, yes. <laughs> like if they're real robotic and stuff. And I've encountered that before. It's like, you know, I can't really I'm not engaged, you know. That's very true. That's very true. I think there's a handful of audiobooks that I've been like, I just can't listen to this person's voice. And it's a shame and it's nothing personal. And I'm not going to, you know, call them a bad narrator, but it's uh, it's a tricky thing. Even when the uh, the great Stephen King reads some of his own stuff, it's a little dry, you know, like uh, he tries, though. He does try to do like voices and everything, but it's like, uh, you know, it's not an actor. Right. Um, I think one of my favorite audiobooks, one of my favorite horror books, period, is uh, The Girl Next Door by Jack Ketchum. And I believe audiobook uh, Audible is offering that audiobook for free right now. So even if you mm -hmm. don't have any spare credits, you have access to that. And it is read by the narrator. But, you know, he doesn't have to do a whole lot of voices because it's all told in the first person through the perspective of this main protagonist. And uh, he does an amazing job. Yeah, I've checked that one out before on script, actually. And uh, what a brutal fucking book. I mean, I've oh seen God. the movie. Back in like the early 2000s movie that came out, which also was, you know, pretty brutal. But that book, holy shit. I don't think that movie does the book justice. In fact, if you were to ask me, like, what book really needs a proper cinematic adaptation, that would be at the very top of my list right next to V.C. Andrews' Flowers in the Attic. That's like with all the remakes coming out these dates. I'm like, somebody do those. They need it. Yeah, that would be great. Um, I think a good director for uh, The Girl Next Door would be uh, the folks that did The Original Martyrs. I think they could maybe do that one justice. Ooh, I mean, the brutality is there. The brutality is there, but I also feel like that book, you know, when people tend to emphasize the brutality, the more I listen to it, the more humanity I feel. And I feel like a lot of that comes through with Jack Ketchum. The way he reads it, he reads it with the nonchalance of you know, a child's perception of cruelty is just like, oh, this is happening and I'm helpless to witness it because I'm a child and I'm largely powerless in a world of adults. But at the same time, I have these icky feelings and, you know, it's a tricky adaptation, but I feel like somebody could do it right. Yeah, that, that would be cool. And it'd be a it'd be something different besides the shit that's being remade now kind of over and over again. You know, let's do something that's, you know, somewhat like you know, on the fringe you know nothing that you know super mainstream stuff is being remade so that would be cool yeah we're looking at you exorcist uh, yeah i'm really 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 worried about that i'm not looking forward to it i i might watch it i might not watch it we'll see we'll see what the trailers look like but i just don't have a lot of faith in that unfortunately me neither no i i, I don't think <laughs> i don't think the team they selected is quite right for that sort of material if there's a single gag uh, or, or or laugh 
comic relief moment i'm i'm gonna be tempted to walk out of the cinema but we'll see let's, let's we'll try to keep an open mind you and i yeah 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 totally you gotta stay kind of open but that's like the uh remake to uh uh nightmare on elm street I, I just could not get behind whatsoever i was like you're you know you're remaking a nightmare on elm street that's a big task and uh it did not live up to the expectations whatsoever of a remake um yeah, that one, I, I feel like I felt that way at the time, but upon revisiting it, I revisited it uh, in, in the last handful of years because we did a Faculty of Horror episode, and I was like, you know, it's trying to do its own thing, and, you know, in the in, in the current context of remakes, I almost feel like it's among the better ones, uh, big fish in a small pond type thing. But uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. but I'm just looking at my top six Stephen King novels, and I believe every single thing on my list has a film adaptation. Are we going to talk about those two? Um, if we want to, yeah, I'm down. So cool. yeah, whatever. All, all King is all good. So well, not all good, but you know what I mean. It's all good to go. <laughs> Stephen King is such a fascinating author, and I was talking about this with a, with a friend of mine recently, and it's like. His thing, his, his his legacy, I think, like the fact that he is such an international best-selling success, the fact that he is one of the biggest names in horror literature, and yet his his shtick, his herb, everything is very blue-collar America. Everything is everyday people. Um you know, doing their thing, uh, living in these circumstances, and it makes it so relatable and makes it so commercially viable. It makes it accessible in a way that the big classics of horror, like Frankenstein and Dracula and like the big gothics are not, you know, mm-hmm. um, for me, that's a big part of his appeal. It, like it, it's it's a limitation of his work. Like those are the boundaries he's always kind of working within. But but he does it so fucking well. Right. I totally agree with that. And, he, and he's, he's always writing like it does not stop. I mean, he just came out with a new book, what, uh, last year or it might have been this year with fairy tale. I think it was this year, right? Yeah, I have to say that uh, I feel like I should say this maybe on the outset that there was a time where I could say that I've read every single thing. Stephen King, I cannot say that anymore. Uh, <laughs> he's still churning them out. I'm checking them out as I can. There are still uh, holes in my in my um uh bibliography of Stephen King and I think it'll be it'll be really interesting if some of your top picks correspond with those holes I'll have to put them on my to listen list right away yeah I hope some of them do like uh, some are kind of somewhat I guess deep picks for Stephen King that you know some people may have not read you know but hopefully there's some good stuff in there my number one I think it's gonna be a lot of people's number one but that's cool and just <laughs> you know when when I get to it you'll be like oh, okay yeah that makes sense so but, so um, do, yeah. do you want to like go back and forth from the bottom of our list to the top? That's that's how Alex and I usually do it on the fact. Yeah, definitely. Let's go from like number six on up and we'll go back and forth. So, OK. All right. Uh, I'm going to let you start it off with your number six. Yeah. OK, so <laughs> my number six uh Top Stephen King novels. My number six, I had to choose a short story collection. Okay, cool. Is that cheating? No, go for it. That's fine. It's fine. It's everything's allowed. It's good. <laughs> Stephen King is 
a master of horror for a variety of reasons. He has a lot of skills. I think when it comes to his big epic novels that I love and that we'll talk about <laughs> and that we'll talk about when we get into like the top three of our list, um, he kind of struggles to stick the ending sometimes. There are books of his that I love, love, love and hate the ending. And I will still go back to and read again and again, knowing that it doesn't end satisfactorily. And I don't care because it's all about the journey, which is, I think, part of the reason why he really shines in the short story format, uh, where it's just a tease. It's just an amuse bouche. You can end off with a cliffhanger that is just like he doesn't have to wrap it up in quite such a nice bow as he does his big epics. And so my number six pick is the. Skeleton Crew from mm. 1985, which just edged out Night Shift from 1978. Um, I love all of his short story collections. I love different seasons. I love Minutes Past Midnight. Um, but I chose Skeleton Crew just because I looked at all the short stories on those rosters. And I was just like, I feel like Skeleton Crew has the biggest bangers. Uh, the standouts for me being Survivor Type. The Raft and The Mist. Nice. Um, two of those have been adapted uh, cinematically. A survivor type has yet to, which, uh, well, no, actually, that's not true. I think the Creep Show series that aired maybe two years ago on Shudder, mm-hmm. I think they they had kind of like an animated version of Survivor Type that was, you know, spooky, but not a right. movie. But uh, obviously, the 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 mist, Frank Darabont's The Mist, is uh, I think a fantastic film, and mm-hmm. The Raft was also a segment in Creep Show Two. I believe so. Yeah, I believe it's Creep Show Two. Yeah, and I think uh, I, I think they're they're really solid short stories and pretty solid cinematic adaptations too. Oh, totally agree. Uh, the Raft is man that that one there is a uh, pretty horrifying, especially growing up as a, a youngster or whatever, um, being in the water all the time and this like <laughs> knowing that there's a possibility that there's a big giant blob of some kind of unknown substance entity or whatever can just fucking suck you up through cracks and you know just dissolve you. <laughs> Dog and cat noises are always fine. So <laughs> <laughs> okay, I mean yeah. Dante cannot be controlled. <laughs> he's looking at me right now very satisfied that he made it into the podcast somehow yeah now he's he's on he's on my podcast now so he's he's a guest honorary guest so honorary keep, guest <laughs> do you hear that dante i keep right, the cats out six? so um let's see my number six uh let's go with uh we're doing pet cemetery from Ooh. 1983 uh-huh okay and um yeah this one's um, I, I did the audiobook of this one is uh, recently. I've already read it uh, back when I was uh, a little bit younger and stuff. But the audiobook was read by uh, uh, Dexter himself from uh, Michael C. Ooh. Hall. So oh, he's got a great voice. He does. And I think that really like super sold it for me because when I originally read it when I was in my teens or whatever. It was good, but it was a, you know, a bit drive for me. But um, going back and revisiting with the, you know, the audiobook style with him reading. Like it just shot a whole new like life into it, you know, and um, it's just it's super like it's dark. It's one of his darker novels because, you know, it deals with like child death and stuff like that. Uh, did Michael C. Hall really nail Judd's uh, main drawl? Because I feel like I, when I remember reading Pet Cemetery as a kid, like he, he would kind of write out the way Judd would go. Oh, yeah. 
and like all his like little mm-hmm. main uh, figures of speech and stuff. Did Michael C. Hall do that justice? Uh, he did. And I wish the, Michael C. Hall would read everything for now. On. <laughs> you know fantastic. what I mean? Fantastic. Like, yeah. He, he's just got that voice, you know, and it, he really puts it over. And um, another thing with Pat Simmerger, sorry, like this always kind of fascinated me is the uh, whole like the Wendigo thing, you know, that's going around in like the whole the background of the whole fucking novel. You got this like Wendigo entity out there, you know, and they described it as being like a giant in the novel, you know, which they didn't really touch on with the movies. Really, so I, I think that's cool. I think the Wendigo is fucking cool, and like we need more Wendigo movies, you know. <laughs> yeah, and I think I think when you're dealing with indigenous folklore, and you're dealing with white people engaging with indigenous folklore, like there always there is that that aspect of colonialism that is inherent in the story and in the mythology. And I feel like Pet Cemetery treads very lightly around there, that this is this is a power that is ancient, that precedes us, that this is land that we don't necessarily know or understand because it is uh, it is land that we've colonized. And so, you know, like the the, the cautionary tale inherent in Pet Cemetery is that, you know, you don't fuck with things you don't understand and you don't sometimes rules exist for a reason and you don't you don't push your luck around that shit. And that is that is one of the many barbs that Pet Cemetery kind of leaves embedded in your flesh after you've done reading. Totally agree with that. Another uh, barb that was left inside my flesh after reading this one or listening to it was uh, this Zelda. You know, Zelda was fucking creepy in the movies. And I think she's even like creepier in the book, the way they describe her and stuff, you know, and. Also, hear Michael C. Hall describe it and everything is even more terrifying. Yes, I'll reveal right now that Pet Cemetery was my number four on my list. So, so, so rather than kind of rehash all these things when we get to my number four, I'll, I'll kind of give my thoughts on it now. But, um, but yeah, I agree. I think the Zelda storyline, and I think Stephen King is equally famous for being very detailed in the world he creates, and sometimes people critique. Stephen King for giving so much emphasis to, you know, describing all of the buildings in the neighborhood, for describing the weather, for describing every fucking blade of grass. Some people are very impatient with that when it comes to Mm -hmm. his big epics. I personally appreciate it because I think in a lot of his books, which we'll get into uh, a little bit later, the town and the setting and the neighborhood is a character in and of itself. And I think when it comes to Pet Cemetery, the fact that um, the mom, uh, Rachel, has this history with death and has this preoccupation with death and sickness and illness is really well used in the story. And I liked the way they adapted it to the screen, but also Lewis and his own kind of, you know, I'm settling down with a family and church is having his nuts clipped off and I'm having a weird affinity for that because I'm feeling equally neutered um, by the idea of family life, like all of this, all of these subplots uh, really give the characters a lot of space. And Pet Cemetery is a, a fairly compact novel in Stephen King's oeuvre, and it's a page turner. And the fact that he's able to kind of include all of that character background in addition to the immediate gory horror happenstance that's happening is just chef's kiss. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. And um, yeah, the subject matter is so heavy. And um. 
also, but besides, you know, Gage dying and coming back, which is horrifying. I think I, it, the cat stuff more impacted me than anything else, being that I'm a, a cat owner. Oh, <laughs> yes. Know, yeah. It's like, it was so sad. And, you know, it's like the, the cat died, but oh, he's back, but he's a fucking demon, you know, which cats are kind of demons anyway. So it's not too much of a difference there, you know. Well, funny so. you should say, because I just got back from Salem Horror Fest, where my Faculty of Horror co-host, Alex West, did uh, a lecture on cats and horror. And I caught her lecture in New York City in January. And so this was my second time seeing it. She did it in Salem. And she kind of... You know, it's a huge topic, which I didn't realize. Cats have a tremendous and sordid history, uh, people associating it with witchcraft, people associating them with immortality, people associating them with death and disease and and, and all the different attitudes that have, um, uh, you know, encircled the subject throughout history was a big part of the lecture. But she Mm -hmm. also kind of chose three different movies that approach cat in horror fiction in different ways as either the friend, the foe, or the familiar. And to that end, she talked about The Bell, Book, and Candle. She talked about House, uh, the Japanese film. And she mm-hmm. talked about Pet Cemetery, where like church was this intermediary between the living and the dead, um, sometimes a friend, sometimes a foe, but for the most part, a cipher for all of our attitudes on, on, on how we talk about life and death and yeah, cats are interesting that way because they're so mercurial, right? Like they do what they want. Oh yeah, there's no control in them. I mean, and uh, they do have like a you know a, a evilness about them. You know, it's like there's some sinister things going on behind those eyes. Um, a lot of people say, um, well, it was off of like uh, was it Constantine or something? Actually, one of the movies was like saying that uh, staring to a cat's eyes is like seeing onto the other side. Like they share this world and the next and all that stuff. And I think that's pretty fucking cool. Mm-hmm. I cool. totally believe it, though. You know, I don't believe in all the other crap, but, you know, maybe some type of like dark fucking other dimension or something, you know, <laughs> going on with the cat size. I can totally dig that. So it that does seem like they know more. Know. They know more than we do about this mortal yeah. plane we inhabit. Yeah, we're just we're just the uh, visitors to it. You know, they're they're the gatekeepers and the owners yeah. of it. <laughs> we're tourists here. Yeah. All right, so we're now to your number five. My number five is The Shining from 1977. Cool. Now, this one is tricky for me because, um, you know, as I've said in, in, in many interviews about myself and my career, and indeed we probably covered this last time I was on this show, um, my gateway to horror was through Stephen King. Uh, you know, I kind of started with uh, R.L. Stein and Fear Street, and then I moved on to, to harder stuff at a, at a fairly young age. I remember I needed my mom to write a letter to the library to let me take out these R-rated horror novels that were technically above my, uh, my, my age range so I could watch them, uh, so I could read them. And I would read them, and then I would want to see the movie version and that's that that was actually my gateway into into horror movies and one of the first of those was the shining uh, I read the book. I enjoyed it. I obviously knew that uh, Stanley Kubrick had done a cinematic adaptation that Stephen King famously hated. But I I do feel like this is one of those rare occasions where the movie is perhaps superior to the book. I felt like the movie improved upon a couple of things in the book that didn't super resonate with me. But mm-hmm. there are a couple of moments that are in the book that aren't in the film that are truly chilling and scary 
Yeah, totally. Um, I did the audiobook of The Shining recently. Like, you know, I reread, rewatch, or whatever. I mean, re-listen, and uh, I can't remember who was narr- narrating that. You said it was Weber, right? I think, yeah, Stephen Weber. I think did the Shining uh, audiobook on Audible's. I know on Scribd as well. And uh, yeah, there's a, a definitely a difference between the movie and the um, audiobook, and you know, the novel. And I think the novel kind of gets a little bit darker, especially towards the end. Yes, indeed. Um, I, I, there's there's a lot more violence toward Wendy. Um, Jack is largely wielding a croquet mallet as opposed to an axe, and uh, and 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 people take quite a beating, whereas a, mm-hmm. a swing of the axe and it's kind of game over. So uh, sometimes a blunt instrument is is quite a bit more brutal. And it, it's funny that uh, that Stephen Weber narrates it i think he has a he obviously has a connection to the role having appeared in the tv miniseries mick garris's tv miniseries of the shining mm-hmm. which is famously maligned for for some cheesy aspects and some questionable cgi and it's a shame because he went a lot closer to the source material and look those hedge animals um, so for those of you who haven't read the book, it's a hedge maze in Stanley Kubrick's movie. But in the book, it's it's these hedge animals, these topiary animals who who kind of fuck with Jack while he's trying to work out in the yard. And, you know, I think especially if you're from I'm in Canada and winters here be dark and deep and <laughs> a coating of snow has this hugely dampening, silencing effect that's very surreal and is very creepy. And I thought that the scenes depicted in the Shining book about the topiary animals and about turning away and hearing a crunch, crunch and turning around and seeing that the animals moved a bit. It was so crudely depicted in the in the TV movie. But in the book, it's scary as shit. Yeah, it really is like uh, they're intimidating. (laughs) Like, yeah, the TV movie. I dug when I first watched it. I mean, uh, it came out on ABC was doing like their little mini series, like Stephen King mini series, like every other month or something like that, which was fucking awesome. I really enjoyed that. And I got to stay up late to watch those. <laughs> so uh, I, I remember liking the Mick Garris one. And I, I still like the Mick Garris TV show. It's just like, you know, the CGI doesn't hold up, which, you know, is what is 20 years old now. So but, um, you know, I think the material is still good and, you know, still well done for what it was. It's forgivable. It's definitely forgivable, especially if you've read the book and you're like, "Ah, I I can see why they wanted to include this because it was so scary. But some things are just really hard to adapt to screen. And, And furthermore, I feel like what a lot of people perhaps don't discuss enough about Stephen King is he does tend to he does have a saccharine streak. He does sometimes like to get into some warm and fuzzies you know mm-hmm. um people remember that uh, that he wrote uh, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption which turned into the Shawshank Redemption of the film he he wrote the Green Mile so he is capable of these heavy heart-rending dramatic things and there are elements of that in the shining book where you know in the end it's just kind of like I love you Danny and it's <laughs> I get it <laughs> But it doesn't super resonate with me, and I I, I liked that uh, that Kubrick's film kind of uh, forewent that. I think that's the primary reason why I feel like Kubrick's film improved upon the source material in that it kind of excised some of that cheesy bits. Yeah, uh, with the Kubrick film or whatever, this uh, you had that feeling of fucking cold bleakness. You know, there's no like loving you know sweetness or whatever in his version of it is it's like cold and bleak you know the way it should be i think it's it's more terrifying that way 
find it more terrifying that way. And I think, you know, uh, King has famously struggled with uh, substance abuse and alcoholism, and I think there's a lot of autobiography in many of his books that feature a, a central protagonist of like a white male struggling writer uh, who's an alcoholic. I mean, who better to speak on that than a white male struggling writer who was an alcoholic. So mm -hmm. he knows what he's talking about and he knows how to tell that stuff well. But I think for people who have experienced alcoholism from the outside, you're like, this substance makes this person a monster. This substance makes this household into a nightmare space. And I feel like that's where Kubrick went with it, as opposed to a less sympathetic uh, depiction of the person experiencing the addiction. And that fucking resonated with me hard. Yeah, same here, same here. Um, also, too, like you're saying, he's, Stephen King's kind of went through all the stuff that most, his, most of his main characters go through. It's kind of like each novel, or some of his older novels anyways, they're like, it's him dealing with his own demons. You know, it's like throwing him in there, all right, let's, let's beat this fucking demon. I'm going to write it out. I'm going to put myself in the story. I'm going to conquer this, if, you know, somewhat conquer it, but, you know, throw himself in there, so... And I think a lot of people find that tiresome. Like, I think there's a lot of discourse now about representation and we want variety in our protagonists and we want to kind of, you know, the male gaze is something that uh, that that permeates the genre. But at the same time, there is such honesty. I would rather Stephen King write about a perspective that he's familiar with than, you know, I'm a. I'm a teenage girl. Like <laughs> when grown white men try to write from the perspective of a teenage girl, it's like maybe they can do it. Sometimes they pull it off, but it's like you don't know what you're talking about. Right. And uh, you know when he 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 speaks from his experience, and I think I think there's enough variety in his narratives, even if these central protagonists are are, are similar. It's it's honest. Mm -hmm. Writing what you know. You Write know. what you know. Yeah, it makes it a lot more honest, like you're saying, and yeah. I think only person that, you know, only dude that kind of nailed uh, writing from a female's perspective in a little teeny bit of a way. Maybe it's because um, it's so long time, such a long time ago, but was R.L. Stein <laughs> reading some of those novels. Like, all right, I can see that. It kind of reminds me of, like some schoolmates or something like that. But yeah, that's a hard one to pull off. It is. It is. It can be. Um, especially if you go as deep as he does, you know, he writes from this certain perspective and then he writes in a certain setting that he's very familiar with. And again, I think that that blue collar working class middle America setting is is such a tremendous part of his career and 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 why he became the household name that he did. Yeah. And uh, he kind of wants me to he's kind of influenced me a little bit to visit Maine. I've never been to Maine before, so I just want to me see it. I don't want to live there. I'm going to see it. I know that there's a whole tourism industry surrounding like visiting uh, some of these landmarks. And of course you can go buy his house, his, his mansion now with like, uh, he's got like dramatic bat fistooned gates. And I think it's really cool that, you know, he owes his career to his honesty of the middle American experience. And he still lives in Maine. He didn't mm -hmm. fuck off to the to L.A. to live large in Beverly Hills. Like he's still that guy. Yeah, which I find really cool. He's probably sitting on his porch right now playing guitar. <laughs> you know, love that. Yeah, it's fucking awesome. All right. So we're going to my number five. And this is kind of like this is not a Stephen King classic, I guess you would say. It's not up there with like, you know, it and all the other stuff. This is a fairly newer novel, but it is The Outsider which came out in 2018. The Outsider. I loved the miniseries. Loved it. 
Mm-hmm, as far as cinematic adaptations of his work go, um, that was fantastic. It, that one was a rare example of I saw the miniseries before I checked out the book and uh, yeah, enjoyed it very much. Yeah, I did the same thing. I was watching the miniseries first on HBO. I was like, oh, this is fucking good. And after the miniseries is over, I decided to read the book, which is kind of weird. Usually it's the other way around. But um, the book really stays close with the miniseries and the miniseries really stays close with the book. You know, with there's not there's not many changes there, yeah. <laughs> which is, I guess, you know, pretty cool. As long as you didn't like read the book beforehand, you go watch the miniseries. Like, oh, I know what's going to happen. That's usually kind of lame. But, uh, yeah, that's another dark one. And, you know, dealing with like uh Killing kids and stuff's always pretty fucking dark and, you know, messed up. And uh, I like the fact that you're dealing with some type of, like, changeling um, creature that's old as shit. Like, I think they said it's from, like, prehistoric times almost or something before that. It's like, and they don't even, they don't ever explain exactly uh, what it is, which is cool. I like the mystery there. And it's so fucking evil. I mean, it's out there fucking eating kids, taking people's, like appearances and stuff i mean it's pretty brutal yeah i agree and i think another strength of the outsider is in this police procedural you know like as opposed to some of his books where it's an everyday person kind of you know dealing with this evil and having to take the law into their own hands we are privy to this police investigation and i really appreciated how the book was mostly about we need to entertain irrational possibilities we need to entertain the supernatural uh which you know a lot of true crime and stuff are just kind of like these are the facts and this is the evidence and you know the the biggest thrust of the outsider in my view is that they consulted somebody who was skeptical but open-minded and it's just like we need to understand this thing on its terms and uh do the best we can and i thought that was a really original and interesting take on something like this yeah definitely um, to me, it also has like a uh, feeling of like you read like uh, Science of the Lambs or something, you know, this like that, you know, it's really good at what it does when it comes to like the detective work and all that stuff and the dark thriller aspect of it. And throwing in like the supernatural is just like a bonus, you know, uh-huh. I would have been happy if, it, you know, if, the, if, if at the end it was just, you were just dealing with a regular, you know, serial killer. But, you know, this is like a, a little bit of icing on the cake when you're dealing with some type of like supernatural creature, you know, that can morph into different people. And yeah. there's also more than one of them out there. Um, there's his other book that came out. I can't remember the name of the top of my head. Cause it's not on my list, but it was another book of his short stories. There's a kind of continuation of the outsider where oh. you find out there's not just one of those outsiders out there. And they kind of like, you know, throw it that way in the book too. Like, all right, you know, I might not be alone or whatever. And, uh, yeah, they kind of I got to figure out the name of that novel. It's a bunch of short stories that came out right after The Outsider did. But anyways, there's more than one outsider. And that's fucking scary. You know, that you got another one of those out there in the world, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, that makes sense with regard to I don't think either the book or the miniseries super stuck the ending. Like anytime I see an adaptation of Stephen King or I'm reading it or I'm listening mm-hmm. to an audiobook. It's all about the journey. It's all about the thrills and chills. The endings don't quite always nail it. And uh, I, I think The Outsider is maybe an example of that. But it is open-ended enough that there is, you know, scope for different stories involving uh, that particular monster and those circumstances. It'd make a great... I wonder if they're going to do a season two. Do you know? I have no idea. I was asking myself that same question before we did the podcast. Like, oh, Outsider, what are they going to do with that? I don't know. Um. 
you know, HBO is it just kind of pops stuff up there. You know, maybe there is a season two in the works. Maybe they just ended it. I don't know. I would hope for a season two. I'm going to continue the story, but, you know, just continue where it left off at there and like do it just for TV. You know, it doesn't have to be like another novel. Just like continue on, have Stephen King write for the TV show. I think that'd be fucking cool. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. And from what I understand, The Outsider was, you know, unanimously a hit, a streaming juggernaut um you know that hit at the right time people were kind of stuck at home and looking for something spoopy oh yeah that was the days of the 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 stand era that we went through <laughs> those weird crazy fucking times where tiger yes, king indeed. ruled airs and stuff <laughs> well we'll talk more about that in a bit i reckon uh, yes uh, i do believe so all right, so that was my number five. So we're down to your number four, right? Well, my number four was Pet Cemetery. Um, I think I've said everything I have to say about that, although I will perhaps add a little something perhaps about the remake. Oh, the remake yeah. movie? What did you think? Yeah, I've seen that. I didn't like it. <laughs> and I won some stuff from that. I won some shit from uh, Mick Garris's podcast. He had like this thing going on where you win like a uh, – Free Pet Cemetery, Blu-ray, signed by the directors and stuff. I'm like, oh, fucking, that's cool. But um, I don't know. I just, I didn't like it. <laughs> so I went into it kind of like they were teasing. They were being very, I felt like watching the movie, they knew what the audience expected. They assumed that you had seen and loved the original and that, spoiler alert, um, Gage was toast. And mm. I felt like the movie really flirted with Gage is in the street. What's going to happen? Gage <laughs> is fucking around. What's going to happen? And then boom, it's Ellie that gets killed. And so mm. already I was kind of like, okay, they're trying to do their own thing. They're kind of switching up. But I was, I was annoyed with it. I was frustrated with it. And I remember I was watching it with my partner in my living room. And all of a sudden, there was a moment where Ellie was attacking Rachel. And Rachel kind of, Rachel's like already totally on board with the, this is not my daughter. I don't know what the fuck this is, but it needs to get the fuck away from me. And she mm. kicks it in the chest and it goes flying across the bed and it kind of hits the wall and falls down. And Dustin just burst out laughing and he burst out laughing and then I started laughing and then for the rest of the film we never stopped laughing and I think it was one of those movies where once I got on its wavelength I started having fun once I stopped expecting it to be what I wanted it to be and I met it on its own terms I started to enjoy it on its own level um you know, I, I, I still think I still think the original adaptation is superior in many respects. But like, do we really want a rehashing of that? Do we really like how is someone going to top that? The best they can do is give us a different take and tickle us a little bit. Right. Yeah, totally agree. You can't top that. And I will give it, um, you know, some props for like trying to reimagine it and stuff that, you know, that's pretty cool. And it wasn't, it wasn't the most terrible thing I've ever seen. If I was a score it out of 10, I give like a seven, which ain't bad, you know? And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Know. Same here. I, Salem, I feel like uh, yeah. there are other stories that desperately need a cinematic adaptation and even stories like that desperately need a remake. Pet Cemetery isn't among them, but it was a tall task and I think they did the best they could. Didn't they um, kind of touch on the Wendigo thing with the remake? I thought they did. I don't remember for sure, though. Uh, maybe. It's been a minute. Yeah, same here. I think, uh, what was it? I saw it, like, it came out, what, four or five years ago now, maybe? Some shit like that. 
Yeah, and I think like it's also worth mentioning that the Wendigo uh, between Poltergeist and The Shining and so, like it's such a bona fide horror trope of white people on haunted indigenous land. Mm-hmm. It's tropey, it's hammy, it can be a really cheap, um, uh, a really quick and dirty explanation for things. And uh, and so yeah, again, in this day and age, audiences, you know. They they don't want they want you to approach indigenous folklore and stories with some sensitivity and some uh, common sense. Right. Um, and and from what I recall, Pet Cemetery tread carefully around those those parts. Yeah, definitely. All right, so I am to my uh, we got here number four and uh, your number four, yeah. Yeah, my number four is a classic that everybody fucking knows. Well, at least would hope most people know. If they don't, they should definitely check it out. But that would be the 1975 novel, Salem's Lot. Ooh, good one. Yeah. That one didn't make my list by a hair. <laughs> it was on my list. It was off my list. It was up. It was down. Um, but a great pick and a, a, an, another great example of, you know, there have been a couple of swings at cinematic adaptation, but I feel like they have yet to fully fucking clinch it. And there's a possibility that'll happen later this year. Oh, yeah. I've heard about that, that uh, another Salem's Lot might be coming out, um, which I enjoyed the original one from back in, was this in the 70s or was it early 80s? I think it was there 70s, right? There two. Yeah. They did the second one, which was uh, fucking weird and crazy. <laughs> yeah. There's there's a writer for Rue Morgue who quite, he's a big Stephen King head, and we talk about Stephen King all the time. And he has he has a weird love for that second one, I think Rob Lowe was in it or something, but it's kind of hard to find and I haven't been able to get my hands on it. Um, I have watched the the Toby Hooper miniseries many, many times and mm-hmm. I have love for it and I have criticisms for it. But uh, there's some there's some chills in there. Yeah, definitely. And uh, the cool thing about the novel, it ties in with uh Something that did not make my list because just because I couldn't narrow down which novel I wanted to like include in this, and that's the Dark Tower series because I just think it's fucking amazing. But uh, this ties in with that, you know, um, Barlow and stuff. There, you know, the priests that's in Salem's Lot, they they appear in somewhere in the Dark Tower in that universe, which is fucking you know pretty crazy. But Stephen King kind of Stephen King ties everything around the Dark uh, Tower universe anyway. So, but yeah. I thought that was cool as shit. That's that's so interesting because I think that is the one biggest glaringest hole in my Stephen King repertoire was when the Dark Tower was coming out. I would see it at the library and it like it was coming out in like a serialized form. Mm -hmm. And so I would just look at the shelf and it would be like, oh, the library has the Dark Tower one, two, four, eight and nine. And I'd be like, okay, if I can't read it all at once. Like, I don't want to. And right. so I never got around to it. And even to this day, I never came back to it, perhaps because I, I did see the movie, the Idris Elba movie. And I was just kind of like, eh, then do I need to? Oh, you definitely need, definitely need to check out the books. The movie yeah, was eh? uh, like a teeny, like 2% of what, you know, the novels are like. But if you're going to go through all the Dark Tower series, you're going to need about uh, two years of your life, you know, just for that. That's how long it took me total to get through all the audio books because they are no every fucking book is epic as shit, like 15, 16 hours, 20 hours for one book. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it took forever, but it was worth it. Like, 
And when you get to the end of the Dark Tower, I'm, you know, I won't say anything about it, you know, before you can check it out. But it's like, what the fuck was what did I just read? You know, like it's such a like downer of an ending and like and a lot of us suffer downers, but especially the Dark Tower series. Holy shit. Cool. But it, it ties in with almost everything in the Stephen King universe. The stand ties in with the Dark Tower, like everything. It's like a giant circle or i mean or a giant revolving like clock of everything being in that universe there and he ties it all in like somehow you know i can't i can't remember half the shit i fucking did a couple months ago but stephen king remembers like you know this character from here you know he was actually tied in with this part of the dark tower i'm like it's fucking pretty fucking killer that's cool that sounds so cinematic it's uh it's a shame they didn't drive that home i mean i do remember watching the movie and being like oh pennywise oh castle rock like I was picking up on some of those threads, mm-hmm. but uh, but it wasn't central to me. Yeah, it, it all ties into one. And, and the movie tried its best to like cram a lot of shit into one fucking what hour and 40 minute movie or something it wasn't even that long. And, you know, it was a decent try, but it needs to be like a series like Amazon was supposed to do a series mm. of the Dark Tower like years ago and something fell through with that. But it needs to be like seasons after seasons to get all this kind of. All this shit down because it's so fucking so big and universe is you know, like enormous and yeah. Well, I mean, I think the odds are good that somebody is working on it somewhere. Um, my uh, my Skype just sent me a notification that my device changed to microphone. Um, it still I- sounds good. Okay, good. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, Stephen King for the longest time was so disillusioned with Hollywood that for a good portion of the uh, aughts. And the early 10s, uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of Stephen King adaptation because he was like, fuck Hollywood. They keep fucking with my shit. No. Whereas now he has fully uh, embraced cinematic reappraisals of his work. He has made his short stories available for um, for for screenwriters to adapt for for a dollar. Do you remember that whole campaign? Yeah, definitely. So so he's really warmed up to it. And and as a result, we have a glut of new Stephen King content out there. I, f- I feel like this boom kind of started with Andy Muschietti's uh, It Redux and then Gerald's Game and mm. The Outsider. And like it's all now Salem's Lot. It's all pouring out now. So if ever there was a time that's friendly for a Dark Tower revival, this is it. Definitely. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll get that one day. That'd be cool. So, yeah, that's... uh. That's my number. That's my number four. And yeah, Salem's Lot's just a classic. And uh, Barlow's one of the fucking best like uh, vampires ever. Like the way he's described and everything, he's just brutal. You know, there's nothing like uh, romantic about him. <laughs> no, he's just fucking. He's a monster. He's very much a monster. I appreciate how like he's very Nosferatu-like with his bald mm-hmm. head and his pointy ears. And again, that was something that the uh, the Toby Hoover miniseries um, touched upon. There's a couple of jump scares involving Barlow where like it's etched into my heart. It scared the shit out of me. Uh, the floating kids, it, uh, it scared oh, yeah. the shit out of me. Also, the meta aspect of Mark Petrie being a horror fan and a collectible painter and stuff that kind of tickled the collectible painter in me. And, you know, I, I think I think that book doesn't get enough credit for 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 meta classic horror knowledge that it depicts. Right. And I think without that book, we wouldn't have Fright Night. Because uh, Fright Night kind of goes along with that. You know what I mean? You got Very true. The dude that keeps, you know, the vampires like the caretaker. Then you got, you know, 
what's his face there as a vampire and yeah definitely get some credit there from uh salem's lot mm-hmm. yeah all right so uh down to your number three my number three is misery nice And that would not be my number three if not for the fact that Faculty of Horror did uh, the movie Misery earlier this year, Mm -hmm. which prompted me to listen to the audiobook. um, And I could not believe, like, I think anyone who got into Stephen King young, you know, you read it as a kid and you understand it on a certain level and you feel like you know it. Um, because you've read it and you've seen the movie uh, a dozen times. And yeah, that's misery. Going back to the book and listening to it as an adult, I read it completely differently. And, you know, a lot of people say that misery is one of the best examples of a cinematic adaptation, one of the best movies to be adapted from his work. I have to say that the book is so much better. And mm-hmm. I feel like the movie capitalized on some of the more cinematic elements of the book, that which you can depict on screen, that, uh, on screen that's not happening uh, in Paul Sheldon's head. But what is happening in Paul Sheldon's head is so fucking dark that if, if, if you feel like you know Misery because you know the movie well, you need to go back to the book because it's a whole other layer of horror going on there. Mm-hmm. Totally agree with that. It's been a while since I went back and checked out Misery, but it's on my list to going back and doing audiobook versions of it. I'm sure the audiobook for it's probably killer. So I can't remember who narrated it. I don't know if they were a celebrity, but they did an incredible job. And it's one of those, like, I don't know if this ever happens to you, but sometimes when an audiobook really affects me, uh, whatever I'm doing at the time, if I'm cooking, if I'm walking Dante or whatever, like sometimes those things remind me of that audiobook and that story and that moment because you were so immersed in that moment when you were doing that thing. Mm-hmm. I have this like paint by numbers kit. Uh, where it's like affixing rhinestones. I don't know if you've seen it on my social media, but I, it's 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 a picture of Dante as Dracula. Mm-hmm, and, I think I've seen that. Yeah. So <laughs> when I was listening to the audiobook, I was working on that rhinestone thing and just chewing through it and loving every minute. And now every time I go back to work on that thing, I want to listen to the audiobook again. I want to get back into that headspace. It was so immersive and so terrifying and dark. I love when uh, books and movies and audiobooks and when they, when they have the power to do that, that that means they did a great job with it, you know. That's right. That's exactly right. I can remember a space on my old street where I was walking Dante and I was listening to Paul Trombley's. Uh, 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 fuck, what was it called? Uh, this Paul Trombley book and something happened and I ugly cried in the street. And every single time I walked Dante pa- past that like lamp post, <laughs> I remembered it. It's just <laughs> embedded. But anyway, yeah, going back to misery, um, you know, obviously there's his captivity, uh, his psychology of Annie Wilkes, his understanding of Annie Wilkes. But also and th- we touched upon this quite a bit in the Faculty of Horror episode, but he's talking about being a celebrity writer. And he's talking about how, you know, in addition to his relationship with his craft, you have to contend with the fact that fans expect something from you. And Mm -hmm. on the one hand, it's problematic when fans feel entitled to something from you because you were an artist and, and your first responsibility is to that art. You do also have something of a responsibility to the people who, um, sign your paychecks, 
so to speak. Mm-hmm. And it, it, he had such a complicated relationship with his celebrity, compounded with his substance abuse that helped him to create, even though he knew it was killing him and destroying him on so many levels. Um, that's fundamentally, to me, what misery is about over and beyond Annie Wilkes. Yeah, totally agree with that. And um, yeah, the whole uh, number one fan thing that always like comes back to me like I'm your number one fan, you know, it's just like it's terrifying. <laughs> I had um, back doing like band stuff or whatever when I was in the band for many years and like, like your big fans like, hey, sign my cast or sign this is like, I'm your number one fan. I'm like, who the hell are you? <laughs> you know, yeah. Kind of yeah. terrifying knowing that you got somebody out there that's kind of like, you know, knows everything that you do and they follow you and stuff like that and that never really interact. But you're a number one fan. It's kind of pretty terrifying. Oh, totally. That comes up with Faculty of Horror a lot. We have we have a lot of fans and and the freaky thing about that is, is Alex and I, over the course of 10 years of doing this podcast, we get quite personal on there. Um, mm-hmm. Bulge things about myself and my history that uh, some of my closest friends no and as a result when someone says that they're my number one fan and that they've listened to everything it's like you know me better than most of my friends know me and yet mm-hmm. you're a stranger to me and so you know i think paul sheldon's ordeal with annie wilkes you know he hates her and he resents her because she's crazy and she's torturing him but at the same time she is able to pull out his best writing and his best work. And it's a very mm. complicated and dark relationship. Um, I, I, I thought it was brilliant. Yeah, totally agree. It almost made my list. Like I said, getting it down to a top six. It's hard. But, yeah, but I thought it'd be a good challenge, you know, in six, you know, it's six, 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 even though there's only two sixes here, but whatever, you know, people get the point. <laughs> I got it. I got it. All right. So we're going to three? my number. Number three for me is going to be the first of the I think actually it's the only one that it's a co-written book here. It's the uh, Talisman by Stephen King and Peter Straub. Another one that where is my movie? Oh, this would make a great this would make a great series because it's fucking epic. Um, I think this was like uh, Stephen King's like besides the Dark Tower stuff, like his big push in like kind of the fantasy horror type thing. You know what I mean? This one's like lord of the rings type epic you know what i mean like and um it involves werewolves which really sold me on it like this dude this kid has a werewolf friend that's helping him out in this other world that's similar to ours but you know we have the same people in the other world but they're different and meaner and there's monsters and you know wizards and shit like it's so fucking epic yeah, there's this alternate reality, which is kind of reminiscent. Well, it's not reminiscent of Stranger Things and the Upside Down because it came first, but I, I definitely felt shades of that in it. I remember reading it as a kid and it it it, it was very clear to me visually, uh, which is usually the sign that it would make a great film because everything mm-hmm. is, is very cinematic in the way that it's described. And it's interesting you should mention, <coughs> excuse me. It's interesting that you should mention that this was kind of a sidestep into more fantasy horror territory, because from what I understand in my research on Misery, uh, Stephen King wrote that um, Eye of the Dragon book, which Mm -hmm. was, again, very sword and stone fantasy, dark fantasy novel. And it didn't do very well because his fans were kind of like we know you for this and we want this from you and fuck what you want to do. This is what you owe your fans. And so Mm -hmm. Misery was largely about that 
tension. And from what I understand, Eye of the Dragon didn't do very well commercially. I quite enjoyed it. Um, but the talisman is, you know, he didn't give up. Uh, he still wanted to play around in that world. And uh, and he did very beautifully in the talisman. He did. It's the ultimate battle of good versus evil, too. You know, this kid's trying to save his mom who's sick by venturing into, you know, the territories or whatever to try to uh, find his mom over there and save her from the fucking evil wizard dude, you know, with his uh, friend Wolf. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's just like it's, it's just the ultimate fantasy. And it reminds me a lot of uh, something that uh, Clyde Barker would write, you know, not mm. near as grotesque as Barker, but it has that Barker feeling like a uh, magic or something like that. You know, it has that kind of whimsical feeling to it. It does. Yeah. So this was a good one. I read this one a long ass time ago and um, I totally forgot what it was called. I was searching for it for years and um, I was just um, Googling it one day like, like, what the fuck is this book here? I, was, I didn't know the name. I didn't know who wrote it. None of that stuff. And then I found it on a, uh, scribbed the audiobook version of it and stuff and i revisited a few years ago and i'm like man this is so good i'm so glad i found this one because it was missing for so long like what the fuck is it <laughs> you know and it needs to be a movie i don't mm-hmm. know why it isn't a movie a tv show like this is like pure gold here you know it is and it's another big fucking mother fat ass of a book and i think mm-hmm. you know sometimes sometimes people see the size of the spine of that book and they're a little bit intimidated and again i, I was speaking earlier about stephen king's inclination to go into too much detail the talisman is a page turner you will mm-hmm. chew through all that and in in the blink of an eye so if the size intimidates anyone don't uh don't be scared yeah, or don't be, scared. be scared of it <laughs> yeah don't be, be ready scared to be, be scared. scared. Be scared. <laughs> um, also, too, while we're talking about this, one of my honorable mentions that deals with the talisman. I'm you read this one is the Black House. No. Oh, yeah, the Black House is a continuation of the talisman. Ah. And, and it is fucking dark. It goes more horror than fantasy. Like, uh, what's his face? Uh, let me get his name here. I'm not calling him what's his face here. But, uh. The boy, uh, the, 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 damn, words are that here? Oh, Jack or whatever. He's grown up now. And, okay. Um, yeah, he's in some weird shits going on with like uh, this crazy. I think it was his uncle or whatever. It was like the like dark wizard and stuff. But uh, he works at like a nursing home type area and stuff. And there's a bunch of murders going on, and it ties in with some like creature from the territories that's like killing kids, another killing kids type thing again. Uh-huh. He's trying to solve it, and it is fucking dark. Highly recommend that one. It sounds a little bit like Dr. Sleep, where, again, we've got this, you know, psychic boy who is up against otherworldly threats that he could not possibly understand. And, of course, Mm -hmm. in in maturity, that trauma manifested itself through addiction, another hallmark of Stephen King. But, you know, he also ends up in this in this uh, palliative care role of nurturing and helping people kind of cross the boundary between life and death. And, you know, I I feel like Dr. Sleep is another example of Stephen King's a bit cheesier, warm hearted, family friendly Mm -hmm. uh, inclinations that I'm I'm not super with. Uh, But I'd check that out for sure. What's it called again? The Black House? It's called The Black House. Yeah. And it's got a there's a great audio book version. I I can't remember who reads it, but whoever does read is really good. And uh, yeah, it's dark and also involves like a motorcycle gang. So towards the end, it gets really like he just throws everything at it towards the end. But it's cool. And um, there's also a perspective in the in the book where it's like you're seeing from the like these flying like 
like insect type things you they're, they're hovering around the whole time in this novel like they're hovering here and there and stuff and they're kind of giving you their perspective of what's going on from the outside it's really it's really Ooh. fucking crazy yeah nice. yeah definitely check that one out on my list all right so now we're down to your number two all right my top two were actually pretty easy my top two picks went on the list Easy peasy, and they never moved. Three, four, mm-hmm. five, and six, I shuffled around over the course of the last couple of weeks. My number two favorite Stephen King novel is The Stand, Me 1978. Too. Another big motherfucking fado, giant epic, another yeah. pretty um, archetypal to the point of cliche, good versus evil light versus dark. Um, But of course, as you alluded to before, it is set in this post-apocalyptic setting where a virus called uh, Dr. Trips sweeps through the world, decimates the population, and uh, what few human beings survive it and remain and are apparently immune to the virus kind of have to come together uh, for, for a final judgment day type thing so Mm -hmm. it it still does have these like really grand archetypal ideas but again the reason this book is so huge is because each of these characters each of these players has so much backstory so much personality so much detail they each have their own reasons for reacting the way they did and there's like this ensemble cast that he pulls together are some of the best characters to have ever appeared in literature in my opinion and, you know, once again, there have been a couple of cinematic adaptations a la miniseries. Um, there was a TV one and then that uh, that Amazon Prime exclusive that came out a couple of years ago. Yeah. yeah. All imperfect in their own way, each mm-hmm. flawed in their own way. But I think they each they kind of scratched the surface of the glory, the timeless epic glory that is this huge singular tale. And I can't get enough of it. I, I, I hope. There's more miniseries adaptations. I just want it all. Oh, I'm on the same boat with you. Like, this is my number two as well as The Stand. Was it? Yes. I fucking love The Stand. Number one and two never changed for me the whole time either. Okay. Um, The Stand is just, like you said, so fucking epic. And, like, the highlight for me is the man in black. He's just so fucking, like, he's kind of cool. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like, oh, he's a cool dude, but he's also super fucking evil. And yeah. he plays a part in the Dark Tower series, again, connecting all this together. You get to see him in that series in a different angle, but it's still the he's he's been called many things, the walking dude, the man in black, I think uh the dark magician or something. Uh some people kind of like um categorize him as like the devil, which he's not the devil, you know, even though like the miniseries kind of like portrays him as a devil. He's something else. He's more like a a dark magician type entity, you know what I mean? But to me, like that just highlights the whole thing. Cause he's always like uh, looming over everything. The man in black, you know, he's just out there fucking walking in the desert, you know, like, recruiting people for his, the great battle and stuff is, you know, fucking epic as shit. It is epic as shit. And I, I, I love, you know, in, in so far as he is kind of simplified and boiled down to be kind of like an evil trickster incarnate in incorporating a lot of different mythologies of of, of who the devil is or, or or what 
the nature of evil is, you know, uh, mm-hmm. setting up in in Vegas and Sin City and, and and preaching this hedonism as opposed to community and like that, that even kind of goes into if you wanted to take it there, right versus left politics and communism, mm-hmm. capitalism and all that shit. But like there's also so many characters. There's some goody two shoes characters in the stand mm-hmm. who kind of drive me nuts. But there's also very complicated characters who kind of straddle the line. Uh, like I'm thinking of Harold. I'm thinking of Nadine. I'm thinking like these are, are are villains technically, but but they're complicated. And you can see where they're coming from. And you can see that everybody is kind of trying to trying to get their own happy ending. And how those things get murky, how these betrayals play out is uh it's it's a classic good and evil story that that harkens back to creationism and like the Jesus and Christ-like mm-hmm. tales and and betrayal. It is epic with a capital E. Oh, totally. And um, I gotta say, I, I side with the dark side a little bit on this. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, it looks pretty good on that side. Uh, walking dude, I'll, I'll take a walk with you, man. You know? <laughs> yeah, it was kind of <clears throat> sorry. <clears throat> yeah, like the good side of this equation is manifested in an old lady in the south and southern hospitality and it's a black lady and when i think of the south i kind of you know people Mm -hmm. are very polite but there's also uh its own brand of evil happening in the south and so you know it uh there are aspects for the most part i think it aged very very well Mm -hmm. um but I think it's also really open to interpretation and and, and some really valid criticism uh, in that regard. Yeah, I'm as south as you can get pretty much besides like Florida and Georgia I'm so- and South Carolina. So, yeah, I know about all the southern evil. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> I live in the Bible Belt and yeah, just me walking around. I'm like a controversy, I guess, like, you know, because there's like a church every two miles around here and stuff. So. <laughs> fun times yeah god fear and population and you know you can take that faith into good places or bad places and uh yeah i i think that good and evil are manifested in these complex characters who have faults and they're not perfect leaders and people still have to choose their path their own path to good or evil uh, Mm -hmm. within this rubric and it's done in a really interesting way it is and um touching on like the new miniseries um I wasn't a big fan of it. Didn't hate it. Didn't really like it. But mm-hmm. I, I thought Skarsgård was a fucking great man in black. I agree. He was a fantastic Randall. Because he had that sex appeal. You know, he right. had that seduction. He had that megalomaniacal uh, follow me because I'm so charismatic uh, type mm-hmm. thing. And I thought that was it, it felt very modern. It did. And like I said, a few episodes here and there are like really fucking cool. But, you know, some of the stuff was like, uh, this feels like The Walking Dead to me. I don't know if you got that feeling, too, with some of it, like when it deals like the community stuff or whatever. Well, I mean, like it, it is an epidemic. It is a plague. It is, you know, and I think with the success of The Walking Dead, it, it's it's kind of hard for people not to draw on some of those tropes of, you know, like the bodies piled up and the and the infected and the infection and. Yeah, I get it. They also tried to do a really weird time loop thing where sometimes they're in the present, sometimes they're flashing back. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think that was confusing to a lot of people who weren't familiar with the story. Um, but ultimately, I feel like that miniseries is intended for super fans uh, just to be like, you know, the story, you know, what's going to happen. Here's here's a more modern take on it. Right. Take it or leave it. 
and I'm all down for more remakes or reimaginings, reimaginings of the miniseries or whatever. Like, keep on bringing them out because it's it's a great fucking it's just a great story. I want to see more of it. So. Yeah, same. And I find uh, this happens to me a lot with Stephen King. I think it's because I read them very young. I watched the movies very young. Sometimes the casting in these movie miniseries, even the most flawed ones, sometimes the casting is so good that like I will always think of Stuart Redman as Gary Sinise. Um, mm-hmm. I think I, I think Fran uh, Molly Ringwald, it wasn't her best performance, but she had the look. And sometimes mm-hmm. when I think back, excuse me. When I think back on the stand and events that happened in the book that didn't happen in the miniseries, I still kind of picture it being portrayed mm-hmm. by those actors just because they were so fucking good. Yeah, totally. And uh, uh, Rob Lowe, that's how he kind of got his like, I guess kind of how he got going there was his uh, portrayal in the original miniseries or whatever. And, you know, Rob Lowe's a good actor, but I always associate him with the stand. So <laughs> he's Nick. Yes. No, 100 percent. All right, now let's see if we get our number ones. This oh wait, I, I'm gonna do my number two, oh. which is the uh, it's the stand, you know. Hey. You know, yeah, so my number two is the stand, and uh, yeah, I everything you said I agree with, and uh, it's just it, it's an epic uh, battle, uh, good versus evil. Um, if you haven't read it, you should definitely check it out. It's a big ass fucking book. Um, there's no audio book of it, I don't think. Have you came across an audio book of this? Uh, I haven't but i am convinced that there is one because i had dinner with a couple of friends and uh somebody was i asked him how work was going and he's like it's i'm doing very routine mechanical work right now and i've been smashing through the stand mini series and who did he say it was narrated by i can't remember if he said that uh but but one does exist Okay, that's good to know because uh, it's not up on Scribd, and I I checked Audible before, I didn't see it there, so maybe it's around there now. That'd be a good one to check out as an audiobook, though. It's interesting to me because I remember the stand was uh, when I was a teenager. It was always on the shelf, and it was the the type of book that like I read it cover to cover the first time, obviously. But in mm-hmm. the years that followed, I don't think I ever reread it sequentially. It became a book that I would pull off the shelf and I would open anywhere in the story and start reading. And I could spend an enjoyable two hours just like back in that world, uh, not necessarily in sequence front to back, but even just even just peeking in again on those old characters and uh, and and what was going on was super fun. Okay, yeah, The Stand by Stephen King. It's narrated by Grover Gardner mm-hmm. on Audible, and it is 47 hours and 47 Ooh, minutes. <laughs> Damn, it that's is available for purchase for 55.26. Oh, man. Okay. Well, but again, if you have Audible, it's still just one credit. So it's the cost of your, your monthly subscription. And it was released on February 14th, 2012. So I don't oh. know why it's on Scribd. Maybe it's got uh, it's got an exclusivity with Audible clause or something. That's possible. Hopefully it'll pop up on Scribd eventually. That'd be cool. But damn, 40-something hours? That's a long one. According to my friend, the uh, the narrator is excellent, and I think they would really have to be because, again, it's a it's a, it's an ensemble cast from a variety of backgrounds, and so to pull off all those accents, all those characters, to really give them life, um, I'm interested. I'll have to check it out. Yeah, same here. Uh, be good to revisit it again in audible form. So, all right, so we are down to. The number Brandon, one. how much do you want to guess? How much do you want to bet that our number one is the same? 
I'm I'm 92 percent sure it's the same. Me too. Me too. Just because it, for it to not have come up yet in our top yeah. six, to me, means it's either at the top or not on there at all. But I have a feeling we have the same number one. Do you want I'm to say it? Sure. Uh, it would be possible we have the number one. Do you want to all say right. it? Get it? 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 Yeah, yeah. It, it yeah, is yeah. it. Yeah. Nice. It's it. What is it? <laughs> 1986 is it. Another big fado flawed absolutely problematic absolutely uh shitty ending 100 percent. still my favorite book of all time agreed yes scared the shit out of me pulled my heartstrings um many cinematic adaptations but uh my favorite remains the original miniseries mm-hmm. um and uh yeah uh, maybe i'll let you go first what do you love about it uh, like a lot of things you said there, it's fucking terrifying, especially, uh, what I first got in, um, first came in contact with it was in a uh, novel form. And that was back when I was like way too young to understand this shit. I found the book. I think my uncle left it at the house or something like they moved out or something and we moved in and I found it. And I just remember it being fucking humongous. I'm like, I did try to read it, you know, and it didn't work out that well. So when the miniseries came out on ABC, that was my first real experience with it. And that shit kept me up for fucking months. Uh, Tim Curry's portrayal of uh, Pennywise was fucking terrifying. Yeah. Uh, I first came across it. It was a yard sale in my neighborhood. It was a sunny Saturday afternoon, like the likes of which is described like you know, Saturday afternoons in the summertime when you're a kid Mm -hmm. uh, is so beautifully captured and portrayed in it in the first half when we're dealing with uh, with with these kids growing up in dairy. And uh, I I was walking up my my suburban street in suburban Ottawa and there was a yard sale and there was a bunch of novels just lying out in the grass. And I saw a paperback copy of Stephen King's It and it was selling for 75 cents. And there was a little round sticker on the back that said 0.75. And Mm. I still have that copy of it. It is fucked. It is being held together with tape and love. It is falling (laughs) apart. But I always kept that little price tag on it because I always, I, I, I continue to marvel that the book that turned me into the horror fan that I am today, the book that started it all, that changed my life, that transformed me, cost me 75 fucking cents. I love that book. Um, I think it's a book that, you know, as I said, I chewed through so much Stephen King at a young age. And when Stephen King writes children and he writes how children are afraid of the boogeyman and how it's a vague, amorphous terror. And here you've got this cosmic monster who essentially preys on children Mm -hmm. by looking into and exploiting that vague, amorphous terror that they have of the unknown, be it the the boogeyman in the closet, be it the thing under their bed, be it uh, a, a a site in the town that continually gives them the creeps, be it clowns, um, mm-hmm. you know, cholerophobia, which is so, so common. Uh, he writes those kids and their terrors so beautifully that as a kid, I was super, super invested. Yeah, he, he gets there and he goes inside your psyche and like this pulls out all the fucking horrible shit from our childhood. You know, that's another thing I like about um, it. Um, just like I've never had an issue with clowns. I'm good on clowns, but you know, he's still it, it. Pennywise is still a scary fucking clown. And he's more than that though, which is even scarier. Like, like you said, he's some kind of like inter, he's like a cosmic fucking 
darkness. He is he is like the the deadlights. He's like a a big giant fucking ball of fucking evil that can take form and whatever you fear. Eater of worlds. Yeah, it's so epic too. Like everything Stephen King does is pretty epic, but that's also epic knowing that this is pretty much the evil, you know, mm-hmm. and it's been around for since uh, when dinosaurs around from what it was said in the novel, even before that, like he's been around since the beginning and stuff. And, uh, and another scary thing with the novel there is like, uh, it, like he goes in each kid's head and pulls out what they fear most. And, uh, there's one scene in there with the giant bird. I'm not a big fan of big giant birds. I, I just think they're creepy as fuck. So <laughs> I'm not seeing like, I think he's in a junkyard and he's getting chased by this giant fucking bird. And the way to describe and everything is fucking terrifying, you know? Yes. And again, like uh, that's not in the movies. Mm -mm. But again, when I think back on it, I I, I can picture I can picture that scene so cinematically. And uh, I'm almost glad that the movies didn't tackle it because I'm just picturing a terrible CGI bird. That's not scary at all. (laughs) And people are like, ah, that scene sucks. It's like, no, it's so, so fucking scary. But another thing that I love about it is, again, like like I was saying before, this is another example of Stephen King really taking pains to describe the town of Derry and describe what the adults are like, what these kids are dealing with, um, the racism, the abuse, and just like 1950s Americana where everybody just looked the other way. These are like mm-hmm. rashes of horrible, violent killings of children that are appearing and reappearing in a cycle and this town is just kind of like well business as usual we don't know what it is and it's dark and it frightens us so we look the other way i thought that that was a really scary element to it that um you know the bystander effect is a very scary reality in the world even today and i Mm -hmm. for one really appreciate that he took pains to paint that picture because it makes it all make sense and again going back to how Pennywise or it, the entity, would kind of attack these kids based on their individual psyche and um, predispositions and stuff. I also liked how when we fast forward to them as adults, they repeat those cycles again. The Mm -hmm. fact that Beverly essentially married her dad, the fact that Eddie essentially married his mom, um, like all of these childhood issues and traumas manifested themselves in these people's adult lives, even though they completely forgot what happened to them as kids. And again, like this was portrayed uh, in the book as as the influence of it, that he kind mm-hmm. of almost wipes their memories, so to speak. But again, in, in common parlance, we could just it's trauma, it's repression. It's it's something that a lot of us can relate to that. It's only when you go back to your hometown and you're there again and you feel the way you felt as a kid that was articulated so beautifully. Oh, 100%, 100%. Like, he nails all, like, the uh, the fears we had growing up. And, you know, and also, too, um, growing up in a town that looks like, oh, oh everything's good and great here. But the, the darkness underneath all that, you know, like, it's nothing is as, as, as it appears, you know. Everything's fucking not bright and shiny, mm-hmm. especially in dairy. Like, fuck dairy. I, I never want to move to dairy. Dairy was real. Fuck that. <laughs> you know, it was so bad. I really want to visit it, though. Yeah, I, yeah, visit would be fine, but not staying. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Um, dare I ask what you thought about the uh, uh, Luca Guadagnino? I think I said Andy Muschietti earlier in the podcast, and uh, and that's that's incorrect. So if you would mind fixing that if you're editing. But uh, Luca Guadagnino's It, Chapter 1 and Chapter 2, huge Warner Brothers box office 
blockbusters, so to speak. I remember they were uh, they were very interested in in getting coverage in Rue Morgue, and like it was such a huge promo push. And when it, mm-hmm. Ch- it Chapter Two came out, they they flew me down to L.A. I got to go to the premiere. I got to go to like all these events surrounding it. And I watched the movies, and I was like, "This ain't it, man. Right. This doesn't feel right." Like, what? How did you feel about it? Same fucking way. I went to the theaters to see both of them. Um, the first one, I was like, uh, I was hopeful going into it. I'm like, all right, cool. It remake. It's been a while. I'm like, I, I got a little bit of confidence in the director. Let's see what happens and stuff. But I don't know. It was too bright and shiny for me. It was too. Uh, I don't know. It was too like poppy or something. You know what I mean? Like with the dark. Uh, with the miniseries, the miniseries is fucking bleak and it felt more analog, I guess. Like the new one has felt kind of like, you know, digitized, like the sh- shiny and, you know, I don't know, this didn't have the same evil feeling. It didn't really do much for me. No, I, I felt like Pennywise kind of lacked menace uh, just because he was too CGI and he was too silly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, scary, yes, but I. He wasn't the kind of guy who's going to rip your arm off and beat you with it. You know, he's not an eater of worlds. He gets up to such crazy shit in the book. And I felt like uh, I felt like the new movies were kind of a vanilla version of that. And particularly Mm -hmm. with Chapter Two, I felt like they just leaned into silly slapstick comedy. I think I think the actor who played the grown up Richie. What's his name? Is it Bill Hader? I think, yeah, Bill Hader. Yep, that's it. Yeah. He, I think he's brilliant, and I think he's very, very funny, but I think you really have to be careful about comedy beats, and indeed, Richie Tozier is the comedy relief throughout the book. He's always cracking wise. He he drops some pretty hilarious, like I chortled a couple of times reading the book. He, he is the comedy relief, mm-hmm. but, you know, when he's in this terrifying labyrinth of the Barrens, and he opens a door to find a tiny Pomeranian, and it's silly, and it's like... Dude. And then ultimately, look, I will say that Stephen King borked the ending of it. Uh, it, it's, it goes into very cosmic territory. There's a turtle, there's a spider, mm-hmm. but it's all kind of <laughs> happening on the level of the subconscious cosmic reality. It's really hard to depict cinematically. And, yeah. you know, the original miniseries was a literal spider and it was kind of hokey and it was kind of weird. But then you've got this remake and like they essentially bullied Pennywise to death. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> you suck. We don't believe yeah. in you. Oh, I melt into a puddle. Like, come on. Yeah, it was weak. Very weak. And, like, and even as film- I can appreciate that, it's impossible to tie up cinematically. That was a that was a swing and a miss. Yeah. The second film I, I really disliked. The first one I can tolerate, but I, I wouldn't I'm not never going to go back for any rewatches with it, you know. Uh-uh. And um, yeah, and this Tim Curry playing Pennywise is Pennywise to me. So it's me hard too. to fill those shoes like Tim, and Tim Curry didn't need CGI. It was him with some clown makeup on a few scenes with like some fucked up looking like teeth and stuff. And he was scary as fuck. I even feel like he was scariest when he wasn't using the prosthetics, like when he would smile and you yeah. would see his smile just melt off into a grimace. It just it drives a dagger into me even now just thinking about it. And and, and for me, when that miniseries came out, I didn't watch it as it aired, but it was available at the video store on VHS. Mm-hmm. And because it was like, you know, eight hours, uh, I think it was four two hour mini movies Mm -hmm. or whatever so it was like on four cassettes 
So <laughs> at the video store, like this thing of four cassettes was almost as big and fat as the book itself. And it was it was sleepover fodder. You know what I mean? We always used to watch it at slumber parties and, you know, you would watch the first half and get through that and you'd be like, oh, OK, that was like three and a half hours. I'm good. Stop mm -hmm. there. Yeah, I was following it when it came on live. Like I said, ABC did their miniseries, which I fucking loved. It was like a magic moment in TV history, you know, when they did the miniseries. And I get to stay up late till 10 or 11, you know, whenever it went off. That was like a rarity. I just remember um, there's one scene in particular with the miniseries uh, with Tim Curry and stuff that uh, they're flipping through a book and they're, yeah. they're seeing the town back in the 20s. And then the shit starts moving. You see Pennywise coming to view. He's like doing little cartwheels and shit. Then he turns around and looks straight at the kids like as they're reading the book and he runs up to him. That is so fucking terrifying because he realizes like, you know, I'm looking right at you, you know, like you're looking at him. He's looking at you. He can see you <laughs> like that's scary. It's so scary. And it's I, I think it's one of the, the scariest TV movies in existence. Mm -hmm. And it, it's actually astonishing to me, even like I've rewatched the original miniseries numerous times and I'm like, I can't believe they put this on TV. Yeah. And it wasn't even on cable television. It was on regular TV where I'm yeah. at. Like, this is on regular TV. All these kids are being terrified along with me right now because <laughs> mm -hmm. we were mm -hmm. to talk about it at school the next day. Like, oh, did you see it? And like, yeah, I didn't sleep much last night. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> me neither. Yeah, it just it, it traumatized a generation. And I, I think, yeah, I think it will, will top the list of many horror kids of our generation just to, just because that it was so accessible, even if you were younger, uh, even if you couldn't rent the rated R movies, even if you didn't want to, you know, read the well over a thousand pages uh, of the novel, which you absolutely should mm -hmm. um, if you're captured by it in any way, shape or form. I think we would be in remiss. Uh, if we didn't mention that there's a very problematic uh, sexual scene oh, yeah. involving yeah. the kids that, um, you know, as a fan of the book and, you know, I've gone on record as saying it's my favorite horror novel. And I stand by that. Mm. I, I find myself called upon to defend that scene and I've tried and I can't. Yeah, it's a rough one. <laughs> yeah. It's crude. It's unnecessary. It's um, yeah, I've, I, I've really tried. I, I've, I've tried to kind of take the tack of like, is this kind of Beverly's sexual awakening? Is this, you know, I, I feel like it's posited as her release from her father having sexual control over her, which I could understand to a certain extent. But mm -hmm. when you read it, it's just it's it's written in such a soft core erotica way that it's hard to take it for anything but uh, shock yeah. value and kids getting it on. It's it's not cool. Um, if I ever get a chance to interview Stephen King, I would want to talk at length about that scene. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be awesome. Yeah, well, his, yeah. his waiting list um, is, I think, about a year now. Um, oh, if wow. you put in a, an, an editorial request and, and, mm -hmm. and because I, I do a magazine month to month, it, it's never worked out. But maybe someday. You need you need to fucking interview him. He needs to like let you like cut in line there because that'd be fucking cool as shit. So yeah. I, I tag him on Twitter sometimes, you know, because mm -hmm. he does respond back to people and like you never know. Like, hey, I'm doing a movie. I mean, a top ten list of your movies or where. Let's tag Stephen King because you never fucking know. I've had people um, comment back on Twitter I never thought would comment back. You know, like big celebrities. I'm like, oh, you know, maybe Stephen King would be there one day. Who knows? 
Stephen King is, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because in addition to opening up his work uh, to cinema again, and, and then there's this glut of Stephen Kingery all around everywhere, he mm-hmm. is very active on Twitter and he's also not afraid to be like, hey, Donald Trump, this is fucked up. Hey, it's mm-hmm. COVID-19. Let's stay home. Um, I, I think when uh, celebrities and literary celebrities and horror celebrities uh are active on social media. It's not just, hey, there's a new, there's a new release of my movie. Uh, get me that royalty money. He is involved in what is going on in the world. He knows that he has a platform and that people respect him and listen to him. And um, I think he engages in high-level discussions in a very matter-of-fact, frank, working-class America kind of way mm-hmm. that he's famous for. And um, that's his brand. And he's. It, it's so much more authentic when you know that that's just that's who he is. Right. And uh, it's really special that he shares that side of him with his fans. Yeah, he's awesome. I, if one person I, I would love to interview him one day and uh, I'm sure they said the wait's over a year. I, I doubt if I, I ever be an interview him before like he dies, unfortunately, you know, because he's like, what, 80 something years old now or 70 something, something like that. He's old, you know, and I don't even want to think about that day, you know, I'll make sure he lives forever. You know, (laughs) a world without Stephen King would be fucking insane. You know, that'll be a sad day, especially when he's still fucking churning out bangers. But uh, but what a body of work and what what an indelible impact he has made upon the horror genre. He has crossed the boundary from highbrow literature to lowbrow horror pulp. He uh, He's the guy. He's a household name. I think more people yeah. know who he is than Bram Stoker. And that's that's saying something. Oh, yeah. Nice. Everybody knows Stephen King. If you don't know Stephen King, then uh, I don't know. <laughs> Wait, where are you living at? Do you have any kind of communications or what's going on? <laughs> yeah. Did you uh, check out Fairy Tale? Uh, I think I asked you that, but I don't remember. No, that actually just when I was looking up uh, when I was looking up the stand on Audible, that was the first one to come up. And uh, I'm I'm realizing that there's quite a few holes in addition to the Dark Tower, the gunslinger stuff. Um, There's stuff that I want to go back to and reread because, again, like my journey with misery, I think there's stuff that that will hit me different um, Mm -hmm. now going back to it as uh, as an older person and having seen some shit. And then there's new stuff to discover as well. It's uh, it's a whole world of it. Yeah, that was a honorable mention of mine was uh the fairy tale book or whatever. It's got a lot of hate for it. I've seen people on like, oh, this you know, this blah 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 or whatever. I liked it. It's good. Yes, the first like half of the book is kind of slow and uh, you you really like, all right, is this another like uh kind of heartfelt fucking you know one of those type novels from? But then it takes a nice uh, left hand turn there when you uh when it goes a totally different direction on you. You know, it it, it lives up to its name, a fairy tale. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And he nails that aspect of dark fairy tale shit like fucking brilliantly. So yeah. I, I liked it a lot. I thought it was cool. Well, if we're getting into honorable mentions, uh, here are a couple of titles that just slipped off the edge of my list. Um, uh, the Tommyknockers. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, uh, it, it, it's flawed. Um, I think it's a book that in retrospect, Stephen King has gone on the record of saying, I don't even remember writing that shit. I was fucking <laughs> wasted. I was mm-hmm. cracked out of my tree. Um, I think there's some things about it that are really, really interesting. And again, going back to what I mentioned, uh, King's, 
ability slash proclivity to go into tremendous detail of the town. I think the Tommyknockers is perhaps an example of a lot of that was a bit superfluous. It wasn't quite as necessary as it was uh, for it and for the stand. I don't think it needs to be quite as long as it is. Uh, mm. But again, for he, he has dabbled in so many archetypal horror tropes. He's done vampires. He's done epidemic zombies. He's done uh, like this is his aliens tale. And um and I thought uh, I thought it was worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also want to honorable mention. Uh, did you ever read Desperation? I did. Desperation was cool. Yes. And it also had a TV miniseries adaptation. Mm-hmm. That one I, I can't remember specifics, but it really got under my skin at the time. That's it's high on my list to revisit. It didn't make my list because again, it, it's been too long, and I don't think I could speak to it with any uh, lucidity or, or, or remember what it is I really loved about it. But something about it did something to me. Yeah. And but desperation, as you um, said, there's like a, a TV series adaption of it or whatever. I just think of Ron Perlman as that sheriff that's from Desperation. Like he. Yeah. He, he is the guy from the novel, too. They picked that role like perfectly for him. Like that's who I envisioned when I you know, was reading that story. So, yes, agreed. A sheriff is fucked up in desperation. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah. Great book. That's a long one, too. But you mm-hmm. know, Stephen King, if you're going to, if you're expecting a short fucking story, that's, you know, one of his novels or whatever. Yeah, it's going to be a long haul, but it's worth it. Yeah. I mean, and, and even if you like mini bites, again, his his short stories mm-hmm. are tremendous. He's got several mm-hmm. collections that are all fucking bangers. Um, different seasons is a set of four novellas that are like huge. Like some of his short stories, like I, I can't remember which collection has apt pupil. But that oh, yeah, is right. a tremendous short story. It is terrifying. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, Lawnmower Man, which had its own crazy cinematic journey. <laughs> oh, There's, yeah. oh, God, The Langoliers, which mm-hmm. <laughs> the worst, best movie adaptation ever. Agreed. Um, <laughs> I kind of love it for its terribleness. But again, it's a pretty freaky fucking concept. It is, even though the Langoliers look fucking horrible but back then when it first came out it was you know oh this is cool but yeah besides that fact it looked bad it is terrifying knowing that you know you're in this place where time really doesn't exist anymore there's you're there utter aloneness you know what i mean and you got these fucking like giant pac-man looking things eating through the fucking universe and you're about to be next that's right that's right i think of it every time i take a plane oh yeah plane rides are terrifying anyway so like having that on top of there you know, <laughs> it's not cool. anytime I take a plane or I get like a new plate or dental apparatus installed. Yeah, both terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I mentioned my other honorable uh, honorable mention. And that was the uh, Black House, which, you know, definitely check that out because it is a sequel to The Talisman. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, The Shining almost made my list. It was like really close to making number six. I love The Shining, I, you know. It's a it's a different experience from the films. If you've only seen the films, you know the, the novel's really fucking cool and gives you a whole new feel for it and stuff. Um, yeah, Carrie is excellent. Um, mm-hmm. I, I liked Firestarter. I liked The Running Man. Um, oh yeah, Running if, Man. If you weren't aware of, of that, that that is the book that the movie is based upon. And whereas the movie set it as like a really schlocky reality TV game show, which I, I think was brilliant and actually a wonderful harbinger to the glut 
of American kind of torture porn reality mm-hmm. TV shows that have come out since The Running Man is it, it, it's different, but uh, but it was revolutionary in that way. Um, I still haven't seen the Firestarter movie, the new one. It looks <sighs> kind of perp. Yeah, I'm good. I, I made it to I, I try to finish movies, you know, when I start, I'm like, I got to finish it. But I made it to like maybe 30 minutes and I'm like, Ooh. I'm good. I don't want to watch anymore. Whoops. Yeah. So that's my opinion of that one. Is yeah. I, I would avoid it. <laughs> it's bad. Yeah, and I watch bad movies because, like I said, if I if I start something, I want to finish it. You know, I want to see where it, it ends up. It might get good. You never know. But some films like that, you just know after the first 30 or so minutes where it's going. And, you know, not for me. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, before we end this podcast, do you have any, like, uh, recommendations of stuff you've been watching lately that you want to throw out there? Oh, heck. Um Goodness gracious. Uh, I have been listening to an audio book that was brought to my attention. I did a cover story on a movie called Wesera, the Bone Woman. And Mm -hmm. the writer director of that film was uh, Michelle Garza Cervera. And she tipped me off that the Latin American Stephen King uh, Mm -hmm. is an author by the name of Mariana Enriquez. And uh, apparently Enriquez's biggest book was just translated into English and it just came out earlier this year. So that's an audiobook that I'm in the middle of. It's called Our Share of Night. Mm-hmm. Um I'm not even a quarter of the way through. It's it's another big fado, but um but I'm enjoying it and it's interesting and I think you know, when people say that this person is the next Stephen King, that can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. So right. the jury is still out to me whether whether this like uh, did she say that just with regard to this person's output is uh, 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 large and vast and, and they're churning out stories with a lot of variety very fast. That could be one thing. It could be the middle class experience. It could be the auto. 